This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. About once a month, uh, we take uh, the time to catch up on a lot of stuff that has piled up, things we go through that we think uh, should make the program, but sometimes get shunned aside because of our uh, numerous interviews. So today's show will be our monthly catch-up program. We hope on uh, next week's show to talk to one of our fellow public affairs hosts here on KDVS, Kirsten Sanford, who is the co-host of This Week in Science, heard on this very same station, Tuesday mornings at 8.30 a.m. Kirsten went down to San Francisco this weekend to attend the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences annual meeting. The AAAS annual meeting is one of the world's largest annual science conferences. This year's theme linked science and a sustainable world. I did get a chance to interview one of these speakers at that conference, uh, UC Davis's own Dr. Ivan Schwab. Dr. Schwab is a professor of ophthalmology here at UCD, and his paper, Why Woodpeckers Don't Get Headaches, has achieved quite a bit of uh, attention due to the fact that it won an Ig Nobel Award. I had a chance to interview Dr. Schwab on Insight over at Capital Public Radio, and if you'd like to hear that, you can dial it in by going to capradio.org insight. That, uh, that show aired last Friday, the 16th of February. On this date in history, February 22nd, 1732, our first president, George Washington, was born. But then you knew that. <laughs> Today's George Washington's birthday. I understand many schools still have today as a holiday, although uh, they managed to combine Lincoln's birthday and Washington's into President's Day, which we uh, celebrated last Monday. Interestingly, when George Washington was born, he thought he was born on February 11th. That's because the British colonies had not yet made the adjustment to their Gregorian calendar. When they finally did this, 11 days were added to the calendar, and George Washington got a new birthday, the one we now celebrate. On this date in 1848, the French royal government forbade a planned banquet of left-wing reformers who then started a riot that brought down the monarchy two days later. This was the start of the Second French Republic. On February 22, 1965, during the Vietnam War, General William Westmoreland, commander of Military Assistance Command, requests two battalions of U.S. Marines to protect the U.S. airbase at Da Nang. By 1969, over 540,000 American troops were in South Vietnam. As our current war in Iraq uh, seems to resemble the Vietnam situation more and more as time goes on, I'm somewhat disturbed to note articles such as the one by Mark Sandalau about a month ago, noting that the bloodshed in Iraq already has cost the Republicans control of Congress, devastated the Bush presidency, and made Democrats the favorites heading into the 2008 presidential campaign. Noted Mr. Sandalau, with no end in sight to the nearly four-year-old war, there's widening concern among Republicans that losing what was described widely in 2003 as the biggest gamble of the modern presidency could hurt their party's electoral prospects for generations to come. 
Well, when it comes to the neocon wing of the Republican Party, we would add, uh, let's, let's hope so. We're sorry to note that as we feared, the Democrats uh, would dither around and not cut off funding in the war in Iraq, instead try and get a, a non-binding resolution. And although the House passed such a resolution, they couldn't even get it through the Senate because they have to come up with 60 votes to end debate and then actually vote. And they came up four votes short. If you're keeping track, all the Democrats in the Senate voted yes, excepting Tim Johnson, who's of South Dakota, who is still hospitalized. Joe Lieberman's vote was one of the 34 against closure, which would have permitted the vote. But it's interesting that, uh, that there are seven Republicans that joined the Democrats in this matter. Olympia Snow of Maine, Arlen Spectra of Pennsylvania, Susan Collins of Maine, Norm Coleman of Minnesota, Chuck Hagel of Nebraska, Gordon Smith of Oregon, and John Warner of Virginia. But interestingly, nine Republicans decided to sit that vote out, including presidential candidate John McCain, senator from Arizona, who seems to be showing his true colors Whereas in the past few years, he's been uh, positioning himself to the center of the neocons in the Bush administration. He's now decided that to take up the mantle of uh, the Bush presidency, he needs to move to the right. And we're reminded of a bit of, uh, a bit of politicking that took place uh, back in 1968, the last time we were involved in a major quagmire. I'd like to quote from the February 9th issue of The Week magazine. In 1968, as the presidential race was winding down, Richard Nixon had uh, promised that he would end the war and win the peace in Vietnam. But Lyndon Johnson was working very hard to bring peace about and thus boost his man, the sitting vice president, Hubert Humphrey. As described by journalists Seymour Hersh and Anthony Summers, Nixon dispatched an intermediary to tell South Vietnamese President Nguyen Van Thu that if Nixon was elected, he'd cut a better deal for the South than the Democrats would. The peace talks were set to begin in late October, but on November 2nd, three days before the U.S. election, two announced that the South would not participate. President Johnson, who suspected Nixon of meddling, telephoned him and angrily threatened to expose him. Nixon denied the charge, and Johnson backed down. In his book, The Arrogance of Power, Anthony Summers wrote that after the conversation ended, Nixon put down the phone and, along with some aides in the room, burst out laughing. The story remained a well-kept secret until years after the war's end. Nixon won the presidency, and the war continued for five more years. During that time, 20,763 U.S. soldiers were killed. I know we're going on a long digression here at the top of today's show, but I think we need to. Polls have showed that although the U.S. public is opposed to a surge, it's against Congress cutting all funding for the Iraq war. That's why our politicians, with their finger in the air, are not going to vote to cut off funding to the war. Instead, they wanted this non-binding resolution, which they couldn't even get. So the war is going to continue. But uh, Congress is feeling its oats, and uh, you may have noticed various articles describing how the Democrats may try to dilute the 2002 war resolution. And Congress is girding uh, for a fight with Bush over, you know, just what war powers are granted by the Constitution. You may be aware of the fact that the last time the U.S. actually declared a war was in World War II. All the conflicts we've involved ourselves in since have not involved a formal declaration of war. And it may be time to revisit that. All right, our quote of the day comes from Liza Minnelli. 
who said religion is for people who are afraid of hell and spirituality is for people who have been in hell. Our quip of the day comes from an unknown flight attendant who we believe this was on a Southwest flight, (laughs) said, your seat cushions can be used for flotation. In the event of an emergency water landing, please paddle to shore and take them with our compliments. And although cartoons don't translate into radio very well, there were a couple of them of such such note in the past week that I think we must try and cite them. The first was Dick Loker's uh, cartoon from the Chicago Tribune, which shows Hillary Clinton sitting on the couch reading a newspaper that says on the front of it, Anna Nicole's baby's father, a mystery. She's turning around to look at Bill, (laughs) who's saying, What? The second cartoon is the first panel from Tom Tomorrow's This Modern World. It starts by noting that in early 2007, President Bush unveiled his decisive new strategy for victory. Bush then says, We must commit to winning rather than losing. I I thought that up myself. I'm the thinker-upper. Our stat of the day is that uh, the war in Iraq has sparked the largest refugee crisis in the Middle East since the Palestinians were expelled from Israel in 1948. That's often described as a Palestinian exodus, but uh, most of the Palestinians were forced out. Nearly 2 million Iraqis, 8% of the pre-war population, 2 million Iraqis have fled the country, mostly to Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. Fewer than 500 individuals have been resettled inside the U.S., which is still strictly limiting Iraqi immigration. The influx of Iraqis is straining the resources of Middle Eastern countries, and Western countries may soon come under increasing U.N. pressure to admit more refugees. Since it's George Washington's birthday today, let's do a little more presidential stuff. Uh, The Sacramento Bee had a presidential pop quiz. We liked a couple of these. Particularly number 14, who was the first president born in a hospital? The answer is Jimmy Carter, which shows how things have changed over the years. Carter was born in 1924, and before that time period, you know, births took place at home. Uh, We also like number 15 of the presidential pop quiz, which president did not learn to read until he was 17 years old? And no, it's not George W. Bush. It was, in fact, the man who succeeded Abraham Lincoln, Andrew Johnson. And we love the presidential poll that was in the, the Sunday, uh, Sunday B, but we'll, we'll, we're going to put that one off till, uh, till our second segment here today. Because I wanted to cite this item on President's Day. Al Newharth, writing in USA Today last Friday, said the following. Our great country has had 43 presidents, many very good a few pretty bad. On President's Day, it's appropriate to commemorate all of them. I remember every president since Herbert Hoover when I was a grade school kid. He was one of the worst. I've personally met every president since Dwight Eisenhower. He was one of the best. A year ago, I criticized Hillary Clinton for saying, this administration will go down in history as one of the worst. She's wrong, I wrote. Then I rated these five presidents in this order as the worst. Andrew Jackson, James Buchanan, Ulysses S. Grant, 
Hoover, and Richard Nixon. It's very unlikely Bush can crack that list, I added. I was wrong. This is my mea culpa. Not only has Bush cracked that list, but he is planted firmly at the top. What's interesting about this is that Al Newharth has always been considered a political moderate. He did make some waves more than two years ago when he called for a phased U.S. pullout from Iraq. He's not been joined in this by many mainstream pundits or editorial pages. We'll talk some more politics in our second segment, but let's now do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week this week for missing the 515 after Bulgarian mass transit authorities began screening softcore porn movies at a station in Sofia to, quote, take passengers' mind off the cold and to pass the time while waiting for a bus. It was a bad week, conversely, for being penny-wise but pound foolish, after Canadian Wayne Kingwell, age 40, was caught trying to sneak into the U.S. by floating down the ice-choked Niagara River on a rubber raft. Kingwell, who was treated at a hospital for hypothermia, told authorities he was trying to avoid the $85 handling fee his credit card company charges him if he mails his monthly payment from Canada. We feel pretty confident that even if he was on the Canadian side of the border with National Health Service, he probably blew his 85 bucks being treated for hypothermia. And finally, it was an ugly week for that old-time religion. After Ted Haggard, the evangelical leader who resigned as a result of his three-year affair with a male prostitute, which incidentally also involved purchasing methamphetamine, Haggard emerged from just three weeks of intensive counseling to declare himself now, quote, completely heterosexual, unquote. we're talking week magazine here let's uh, let's go to their only in america file they had a couple interesting items this first one especially has to come under the only america heading according to the magazine an insurance company is suing an elderly wisconsin woman over injuries suffered by a meals on wheels worker who slipped on her icy driveway the insurance company contends that ann kuiper 81 was negligent but Kathy Bellaveri, director of senior services for Waukesha County, said Meals on Wheels recipients are, by definition, homebound people who are frail. Suing Kuiper for not clearing the ice from her driveway is not only unfair, she says, it may dissuade other seniors from seeking life-sustaining services. And how about this one? In a Jersey high school, 
has now banned students from tape recording their classes after a teacher was caught telling non-Christian students they were going to hell. Kearney High School history teacher David Paskowitz also told students that the Big Bang and global warming are myths. School officials say Paskowitz should not have shared his religious views in class, but that the taping violates the teacher's and student's privacy. Parent Paul LeClaire, whose son Matthew, 16, recorded the lectures, said the new rule sends all the wrong messages. And from the boring but important file, we have the following. The former number three official at the CIA was indicted on bribery and corruption charges. Kyle Dusty Fogo, the CIA's chief administrative officer from 2004 till last May, is accused of accepting bribes to steer government contracts to his friend Brent Wilkes, a Republican fundraiser and associate of Duke Cunningham, the former California Republican congressman now serving an eight-year sentence on federal corruption charges. Wilkes has also been indicted. Wilkes apparently is also a pal of John Doolittle, Radio Parallax's favorite local congressman. But here's the part we ponder. While the Russians and other spy agencies are sending people against us with names like Vladimir Putin, we have guys in the CIA named Dusty Fogo. Uh, Maybe it's Fogo. I I don't know. F-O-G-G-O. Please, if you know how to pronounce Dusty's last name, send us an email at info at radioparallax.com. All right, we're coming uh, up against it on time here. I just want to close this segment noting that uh, apparently these days, rehab cures everything. Ted Haggart has a three-year affair with a male prostitute, buys crank along the way, goes to rehab, now completely heterosexual. San Francisco Mayor Gavin Newsom is having an affair with his campaign manager's wife. What does Gavin do? He enters rehab. Apparently, rehab cures adultery. Mel Gibson gets arrested speeding around Malibu drunk. (laughs) Asks the police officers if they're Jewish. Enters rehab. Apparently, anti-Semitic remarks can be cured by rehab. Britney Spears decides one day to shave her head and get some tattoos. Well... She's now entered rehab. Apparently, rehab cures a compulsion to become bald and tattooed. Lindsay Lohan enters rehab. Apparently, rehab cures you of being Lindsay Lohan. And we certainly say it's high time. But we were just not really fully aware of of how many things rehab can cure these days. Apparently, if you send suggestive instant messages to congressional pages... You can then enter rehab. It'll cure you of that, like, you know, Congressman Mark Foley. Michael Richards gets into hot water by uh, dealing with some hecklers by use of the N-word. Apparently, rehab can cure that as well. Clearly, in future programs, we need to bring some people on this show that are running some rehab operations that can tell us just how many things they can cure. We're just not aware of the great strides that have been made in the field of psychiatry, psychology, and rehabilitation. What we do want to say, as much as we uh, don't care much for San Francisco Mayor Gavin Newsom, uh, at least he had the courage to go before the cameras and admit he made a mistake, which is more than we can say for George W. Bush. 
On that note, let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. As promised in the first segment, we were going to delve into the presidential poll from the Sacramento Bee last Sunday. This was by Gene Weingarten of the Washington Post. I think this is uh, worth getting into a bit. According to a recent survey, noted Mr. Weingarten, 17% of the American public strongly approves of the job that George W. Bush is doing. Not just approves, but strongly approves. After probing the question of how it is these people make their judgments, noting then that in the interest of fair and responsible journalism and without any preconceived biases, I've created a poll to scientifically analyze this group of Americans. Please do not answer the questions below unless you strongly approve of the job President Bush is doing. Question one, how do you think the war in Iraq is going? A, splendidly. B, very well indeed. C, quite nicely, thank you. Or D, pretty darned okay. Question two, how would you rate the president's handling of Hurricane Katrina? A, masterful. B, super. C, four stars. Or D, very, very good. Question three, how do you pronounce America? A, America. B, other. Question four, what is your primary source of news? A, cow behavior, caterpillar activity, tree moss changes, etc. B, what my common law spouse heard at bingo. C, homeland security, color alert charts. Or D, the Bible. And final question for those who strongly approve of the job President Bush is doing. What is the biggest problem facing America today? A, People criticizing President Bush. B. Discrimination against shotgun enthusiasts. C. Sissies. Or D. The Jews. Uh, We got a kick on last week's show out of noting that uh, the Bites column in the Sacramento News and Review agreed with us that the Kevin Federline ad in the Super Bowl was pretty funny. And uh, we thought they were pretty on the money with uh, last week's column, which uh, coined a new word for use in the Urban Dictionary. The word was foxaganda, defined as Bush administration propaganda masquerading as news, 
which can appear on Fox News or any other corporate media, along with so-called public channels like NPR and PBS. A thanks went out to the Sacramento News Review's own Jackson Griffith for the coinage. Foxaganda. Not bad. In the same column, Bites also noted uh, the Monday news story, previous Monday news story from the Times, Iranians arming Iraqi militias, question mark, which was reprinted by the Sacramento Bee. Um, According to that article, Iranians have supplied the explosive to Iraq Shia militants that so far have accounted for the deaths of 171 American soldiers. Well, never mind that Iraq Sunni militants have killed thousands of U.S. troops with explosives stolen from improperly guarded ammo depots after the successful American invasion. And uh, in a related story which may uh, dismay our Humvee driving governor, it was noted that the Marines in Iraq do not want more Humvees. The U.S. Army and Marine Corps are petitioning Congress for extra money for mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicles, called MRAPs, at about $1 million per pop. The armored Humvee costs $150,000. The Marines wanted to replace all the Humvees in Iraq because of their high death toll. Almost two-thirds of the 700 Marines who have died in Iraq were killed in Humvees. I think the question we taxpayers need to ask is, how is it you can spend $150,000 for a vehicle and have it be a danger to the troops? Apparently, Congress has already funded 1,049 of these MRAPs in the 2007 budget. At a million dollars a pop, that's a billion dollars worth of vehicles. I mean, we're not quibbling over the fact that you want to have proper vehicles that can keep our our people safe, but a million dollars a pop? (sighs) Meanwhile, you know, folks are are raising raising Cain over Nancy Pelosi wanting to be able to take a jet all the way home to California. Admittedly, that's probably not going to come really cheap, but that's, you know, that's not going to cost a billion dollars worth of flights to get... uh, the number three person in uh, in Washington um, home to visit her constituents in San Francisco. How about this item on our financial priorities? Bush opposes redesign of money for the blind. According to the AP, redesigning paper money to make it easier for the blind would be too expensive and cause undue hardship on the vending machine industry, the Bush administration is arguing in court. Government lawyers filing an appellate brief last Thursday argued that blind people could try portable money readers or use credit cards. A district court judge in Washington had had ruled last November 28 that the government must devise ways for the blind to recognize paper money of different values. He said the United States was the only nation that printed bills in all denominations in the same size and color. Apparently the vending machine industry has uh, quite a lot of clout, which... I'm sure is why the Treasury has not withdrawn the dollar bill from circulation. It should have been done years ago. They produced yet another in a series of $1 coins. Until they take the $1 bill out of circulation, the coins are not going to be a success. Imagine what you could do with the $2 billion a week we're spending in Iraq. Uh, How about this item? Intelligence report from Parade. In the wake of the Indian Ocean Tsunami... Christmas 2004, the U.S. government uh, pledged $405 million to Indonesia to help them rebuild. The U.S. has sent just $102.6 million of that total. 
If you start tallying up the amount of uh, good that could be done by using the funds that are being devoted to the quagmire that is Iraq into more productive enterprises, well, you know, it, it, it'd be pretty mind-boggling. We're really keen to talk about this item from the uh, American Association for the Advancement of Science uh, meeting in San Francisco. Rusty Schweikert and others are proposing that we do something about uh, the asteroid Apophis. Well, uh, that asteroid and others are among the near-Earth objects which potentially could hit the Earth with uh, something like 80,000 times the energy of a Hiroshima bomb. Rusty Schweikert was an Apollo uh, astronaut, and he's uh, got a plan. Well, there are several plans to put devices out there that could slowly, uh, slowly pull an asteroid off of a collision course with Earth. All these ideas are going to be pretty expensive, and they're going to involve new technology, but the consequences of not doing it uh, could be pretty, pretty grim. Uh, it isn't a matter of if these things are going to hit, it's a matter of when. The last uh, severe asteroid hit uh, that we know about was uh, 99 years ago in Siberia, the Tungusta event. An asteroid apparently struck the Earth and exploded in the air with the force of a 10 megaton nuclear bomb. I think we need to get Rusty Schweikert on this program to talk about this. This is a long-range plan. Uh, people uh, don't seem to take it very seriously, but this would be a very good use of, uh, of funds that go to high-tech anyway. Unfortunately, nowadays they go to high-tech objects that, uh, that blow things up and, and kill people. This would be more productive. We, we are encouraged by the tone of the news coverage of late. It appears that uh, every cockamamie uh, uh, bit of propaganda that was disseminated by this administration and the ramp-up to war was basically presented unchallenged by most of the mainstream media. But these days, even people like The Economist... January 13th issue, have headlines like this. George Bush announces one more push for, quote, victory, unquote. Is he just reinforcing failure, question mark? In an excellent article, January 18th of this year, uh, done by Mark Seibel for the McClatchy Washington Bureau about the war in Iraq, the B had the headline, The War in Iraq According to Bush, with the subtitle, Is the President Giving an Accurate Account of Events? Said Mark Seibel with refreshing candor, President Bush and his aides, explaining their reasons for sending more U.S. troops to Iraq, are offering an incomplete, oversimplified, and possibly untrue version of events there that raises new questions about the accuracy of the administration's statements on Iraq. And I don't think you can state it any more clearly than that. We note uh, that the outgoing uh, general in charge of Iraq, George Casey, told a Senate hearing a couple weeks back that an official cost estimate of the new deployment, the surge, came in dramatically higher than the White House had previously said. And George Bush's nominee to head the U.S. Central Command, Navy Admiral William Fallon, told his Senate confirmation hearing recently that the time for finding solutions in Iraq is running out. What we've been doing has not been working, he said. We've got to be doing, it seems to me, something different. As the UK prepares to take out something like 1,600 troops out of Iraq, the White House is saying, well, it just shows that what we're doing over there is succeeding. The White House is also leaking stories about its lack of confidence in Iraqi Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki. The idea being, of course, that, well, those people over there, they're just not ready for what we're trying to do for them. Senator John McCain is trying to scapegoat uh, Donald Rumsfeld. 
But you know, Rumsfeld works for his boss, the thinker-upper. Of course, we always did like the joke uh, that came about in the wake of, uh, of Dick Cheney's heart palpitations. Someone pointed out, hey, you know, if something happens to Cheney, Bush could become president. But we'll return to that topic in just a minute. I did want to quote from Max Boot, writing in the Los Angeles Times about what's happening over in Iraq. Said Max Boot, if we lose the war in Iraq, hardcore conservatives know whom to blame. The fault will lies squarely with the press, or as the bloggers call it, the MSM, mainstream media, which they accuse of focusing too much attention on casualties and chaos. It's true there has been some biased, slipshod news coverage out of Iraq, but the best of the journalists there have braved death every day to provide the American people with a clear-eyed and sobering view of the conditions on the ground. When the official story was that the war was already won, or that the insurgency was merely a temporary nuisance, reporters there portrayed a much bleaker situation. It was the press, and not President Bush or his generals, that informed us that the insurgency was growing. It was the press that first warned that the Sunni-Shiite schism was turning into a civil war. Of course, blaming the messenger for the current debacle in Iraq takes the heat off those who deserve it, from Bush to former Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld to military leaders. Perhaps that's the point. And speaking of Dick Cheney and uh, the Valerie Plame case, which we're very keen to see what will develop uh, out of that jury decision, we would in the meantime uh, unhesitatingly refer you to the article by Catherine Olmsted, which was printed in the forum section of Sunday's Sacramento Bee. Catherine Olmsted is a professor of history here at the University of California, Davis. Her 1996 book, Challenging the Secret Government, the Post-Watergate Investigations of the CIA and FBI, examined the fights over secrecy and power in the Ford administration. Wrote Dr. Olmsted, From the witnesses at the I. Lewis Scooter Libby trial, we've learned that Vice President Dick Cheney was deeply involved in the campaign to discredit former Ambassador Joseph Wilson, who had publicly refuted the Bush administration's contention that Saddam Hussein was trying to buy processed uranium from Niger. Cheney came up with a list of talking points for his aides. He wrote out answers to possible questions from reporters. He authorized the leak of top-secret documents to support his case. The vice president's role in the Wilson saga is not surprising to those who have examined his early career. Cheney has consistently shown his determination to use government secrets, or more specifically his control over government secrets, as a means to attack his political enemies. Cheney's notes and memos from the 1970s, which survive in the files of the Gerald R. Ford Library in Michigan, demonstrate his longtime hostility to reporters and members of Congress who dared to challenge presidential authority. Dr. Olmsted goes on to describe how various reporters in the early 1970s had uh, blown the whistle on some uh, government activities and how then-presidential aide Richard Cheney drafted some notes outlining possible responses. Dr. Olmsted discovered these notes when researching uh, her dissertation at the Gerald R. Ford Library in 1990. Cheney's notes show how he wanted to go after Senator Frank Church, a Democrat of Idaho, who was uh, following up on some of Hirsch's scoops with congressional inquiries. Regarding Hirsch, Cheney wanted to intimidate him to stop other reporters from writing similar stories. He listed several options for the president, including an FBI investigation of Hirsch, an investigation of the Times, an investigation of Hirsch's sources, obtaining a search warrant 
to, quote, go after Hirsch and remaining materials, unquote, and seeking criminal indictments of one or more parties based on information now at hand. Ford's attorney general, former law professor Edward Levi, argued strongly against legal actions. But, Dr. Olmsted noted, Cheney and his boss, Chief of Staff Donald Rumsfeld, continued trying to punish those whom they felt exposed national secrets. When, in December of 1975, terrorists in Greece assassinated the CIA station chief in Athens, Richard Welch, this was after a left-wing magazine had identified him as being CIA, the Ford administration, i.e. Rumsfeld and Cheney, used the Welch murder to equate congressional Democrats with anti-CIA extremists who published his name. Welch's murder eventually helped lead to a law against divulging the identities of CIA agents, agents like Joseph Wilson's wife, Valerie Plame. In other words, writes Dr. Olmsted, the post-Watergate hysteria over national security leaks, a hysteria inflamed by Ford aides like Dick Cheney, set the stage for the current trial of Cheney's top aide. The article concludes noting that testimony at Libby's trial suggests that Cheney's perception of the propriety of leaking the names of CIA agents has changed. It now appears that it's acceptable if the leaker is in the White House and the husband of the named operative is a critic of the administration. Fine article by Dr. Olmsted. We recommend that you uh, pull it up uh, on the internet and read it in its entirety. Again, that was in uh, Sunday's Sacramento Bee. Speaking of the B and columnists, probably the person we are least jealous of on this program is Rick Cushman, the TV columnist. When we consider the kind of things that Mr. Cushman has to watch to do his job, well, I'd rather have the flu. Well, I'm exaggerating slightly. I'd rather have a cold. I wouldn't want that real, you know, body achy kind of flu. But once in a while, there is something really good on television, and we want to thank Rick Cushman for pointing that out to us. Wrote Rick, let's hear it for Frontline, the daring, unflinching, always thorough news series on PBS. On Tuesday, Frontline aired the second of a four-part series called News Wars. The program looks at the growing pressures for profits, just as most news organizations are losing ground to all forms of technology. In this series, Frontline and, and reporter Lowell Bergman trace a handful of recent battles between the press and Bush administration to look at the notions of leaks and protecting anonymous sources. A great deal of attention is focused on the case of Valerie Plame. Wrote uh, Rick Cushman, the series looks at attacks against the press's reporting abilities going back to the Nixon administration, and it says that today the Bush administration has little loyalty to the notion of an open government and Bush's people have been effective at harassing the press because of the economic vulnerability of all media these days. There was a curious article in the B um, looking back at uh, the newspaper back in the 1920s, standing up to advertisers and the Ku Klux Klan. Article by Steve Wigand, B staff writer, noted that, um, that when the B published photos of a lynching that had taken place in Sonoma County, it took a lot of heat from some of its advertisers, but uh, took the attitude that, well, they, speaking of the advertisers, know perfectly well through long years of experience that their firm would be told that the news business was none of its business. Anyway, we recommend you read this article as well. Uh, it was fascinating to see how the Ku Klux Klan uh, was making inroads in Sacramento here. 
1922, and under the uh, the heat uh, of a lot of newspaper attention, uh, it, it sort of folded up its tent and went away. By a lot of people in the media showing some courage and standing up to some bad guys, uh, they were defeated. That's still an inspiring story 85 years later. Let's, uh, let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. do some science. We like this discussion from the pages of New Scientist magazine. In pursuit of healthy, chemical-free outdoor pursuits, Sasha Lauer ended up perusing the frequent asked questions at Gossamer Gear's website. She was reassured to read that in the section covering water sterilizing tablets, is there chlorine in chlorine dioxide? Was the question. No, there's no chlorine in chlorine dioxide was the reply. Although chlorine dioxide has the word chlorine in its name, the two chemicals have completely different chemical structures. This prompted the magazine to suggest that Gossamer Gear's copywriters may need to add another frequently asked question, (laughs) who taught you chemistry? And yes, for the periodic table challenged, the chlorine in chlorine dioxide is chlorine. How about this item from Forbes? The United States is not the most obese nation on Earth. It ranks ninth. According to the International Association for the Study of Obesity, the nations that are even fatter than the U.S. are seven tropical island nations with high-fat diets. Nauru, Micronesia, the Cook Islands, Tonga, Niue, Samoa, and Palau, along with the only non-island nation in the lot, Kuwait. Here's a startling stat from the New York Times. 10%, just 10% of beer drinkers consume 43% of all beers sold. These core beer drinkers average nearly a gallon a day. We like this item from New Scientist. Uh, A paleontologist wrote in to describe how he used to share an office with another professor at Wake Technical Community College in North Carolina. One day, a student came in to complain to his colleague about her poor grade in a term paper. The professor replied that the grade was poor because the student's paper had obviously been plagiarized. He proved the point by citing the original sources for various sentences and paragraphs she had submitted. Sounding both injured and indignant, the student replied, No, I didn't do that. It was the person who wrote the paper for me. Wrote Lamb, there followed a silence in the office of what was probably only about 30 seconds, but what seemed like five minutes as my office mate and I stared at each other, 
trying to come up with a reply that even came close to doing justice to the situation. And in that great frontier where science meets stupidity, we have the following. A new vaccine can prevent millions of cases of cervical cancer, but only if it reaches those most at risk. That's according to Ann Friedman writing in The American Prospect Online. State legislators across the country are now debating whether to require school-age girls to be vaccinated against the sexually transmitted human papillomavirus, which causes cervical cancer. Conservative Christian groups are lobbying against mandatory vaccination on the grounds that removing the threat of genital warts and cancer would encourage teens to engage in premarital sex. We should remind you that this exact same mentality seemed to have been out there acting when the very first antibiotic, Salversan, was developed by the scientist Paul Ehrlich, which was effective in treating syphilis. The uh, Christians of that era, the conservative types of that era, argued that, you know, if we were going to cure syphilis, this would encourage people to go out and sin more. And let's face it, if you know any teenagers, you know, 13, 14, 15-year-old girls, you know they're saying to themselves, boy, I would certainly be out there engaging in premarital sex if it wasn't for that concern I have over genital warts and cervical cancer. All right, where science meets stupidity, part two. Article by Carrie Peyton Dahlberg from the Sacramento Bee. Smoking marijuana can ease HIV-related nerve pain, UC San Francisco researchers are reporting in a study being hailed by legalization advocates as proof that federal pot policy is deeply misguided. The rigorous study, appearing in the issue of the journal Neurology, was funded by a state effort to provide answers in the long debate over marijuana makes good medicine. Sad that it requires state money because the federal government is very reluctant to do any kind of studies that show that marijuana may have medicinal value. Very sad. But in a related story by Michael Doyle from the B. Washington Bureau, it was noted that uh, medical researchers need more marijuana sources because government supplies aren't meeting a scientific demand a federal judge has ruled. In an emphatic but non-binding opinion, The Drug Enforcement Agency's own judge is recommending that a University of Massachusetts professor be allowed to grow a legal pot crop. The DEA isn't required to follow uh, Judge Bittner's 88-page opinion, but the ruling has resonated uh, in labs and with civil libertarians. Said Alan Hopper, an attorney with the ACLU, the ruling is an important step toward allowing medical marijuana patients to get their medicine from a pharmacy just like everyone else. And in other news regarding substances that are smoked but have been proven to be dangerous, we have the following. Scientists have finally found an instant cure for cigarette addiction, brain damage. When researchers in California and Iowa surveyed a set of 32 smokers who had suffered damage to part of the brain called the insula, they were surprised to find that 12 of them immediately and completely lost their desire for cigarettes. Said researchers, the insula appears to be a translator between the body's physical needs and psychological feelings. This doesn't mean the doctors are going to be doing a surgery to cure chronic addiction uh, to nicotine, but uh, researchers are hopeful that they can knock out this one area with drugs or magnets or electroshock therapy. They can maybe disrupt that whole cycle of addiction. Pretty interesting stuff. How about this item? The romantic scent of the open sea comes from seaweed-munching bacteria, according to a new study. 
That uh, beach aroma is actually a gas called dimethyl sulfide, or DMS. It's produced when ocean bacteria break down dead sea plants, such as plankton and seaweed. When the plants die off, this particular strain of bacteria rushes to the scene, where it switches on a gene to make DMS, the source of that fishy, tangy smell, according to the study's author, Andrew Johnston. Johnson and his team isolated the gene and recreated DMS in the lab for closer study. It's noted that DMS may affect the weather by changing ocean cloud formations. But the researchers found yet another strange property to the gas. It attracts seagulls. Apparently seagulls are attracted to the scent from miles around. When the scientists opened up a vial of DMS outdoors, they were bombarded by a flock of hungry birds. And some other news out of the AAAS meeting in San Francisco this weekend. Uh, well, it comes the following, written up by Carrie Peyton Dahlberg in The Bee. For a candy maker, it's a tantalizing vision. The same plant that's fermented and pulverized into chocolate might also maintain sound arteries, protect against cancer and diabetes, and even boost brain power. As researchers outlined the latest word on cocoa at the AAAS meeting, the sticky fingerprints of one of the world's largest candy maker were everywhere, and the imprint of UC Davis was not far behind. Mars Inc., the makers of Three Musketeers, Snickers, Milky Way, and M&M's, has spent 18 years on a cocoa crusade hoping to create healthier foods from an ingredient that today, <laughs> I love this line, that today exists in only trace amounts in its most popular candy bar which we suspect at Radio Parallax is the Snickers, although we're not sure. If you do look at the ingredients on the Snickers bar, it's got things like caramel, nougat, peanuts, and milk chocolate, which is, as far as we, we know, doesn't actually contain chocolate. No, I'm just kidding. Mr. McMillan and I have quite a long-running battle over that. Uh, he, he likes uh, milk chocolate for reasons which I'm unable to understand at all. But we would like to point out for the record the happy news that when a box of C's chocolate is given to Radio Parallax, there is no fighting over the various delicious confections. But back to the article. Along the way, Mars Inc. has enlisted the University of California Davis as a key ally, funding studies by at least 20 investigators and creating a chair in the nutrition department. University records show that Mars has spent more than $10 million backing cocoa-related research at Davis since 1997. UC Davis and Harvard probably stand as the two major U.S. partners in Mars' efforts to understand cocoa, said Ian McDonald, a professor at the University of Nottingham Medical School. Now, we, we don't want to poo-poo this. I'm sure that, uh, you know, some of these studies that show health benefits uh, have some validity to them, but... It does make people a little bit nervous when you see a uh, someone who stands to, to profit from uh, a product promoting research into why that product is just so darn good. We've only got a couple minutes left. Let's do a few milestones. A couple weeks back, uh, Jerry Stiller and Ann Mira, Ann Mira being Jerry Stiller's wife of more than 50 years, received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. This, cor this correspondent remembers Stiller and Mara as being just a great comedy team, stand-up comedy team, husband and wife. Great appearances back on the old Ed Sullivan show. 
And uh, how it is the two of them with their stellar comedy genes got together to produce Ben Stiller is a complete and utter mystery to this program. As far as we can see, Ben Stiller makes Jim Belushi look funny. Anna Nicole Smith uh, pretty well got covered by the mainstream media. No need to say much about uh, her passing on this show. We would, uh, we would want to comment on uh, Leo McCarthy, the former Speaker of the California Assembly and California Lieutenant Governor. He passed away a couple weeks back. We're going to try and bring someone on the show that worked with uh, Leo McCarthy to tell you a little bit about him. He was uh, quite influential for quite some time. Let's go out with the obituary of Bob Carroll, Jr., the name may not ring a bell, but if you've ever seen a television a situation comedy, uh, you have been influenced by Bob Carroll Jr. Wrote the L.A. Times, Bob Carroll Jr. and Madeline Pugh Davis were walking down a street in Hollywood one day in the 1950s when they noticed a pizza maker in the window of an Italian restaurant tossing pizza dough into the air. Nothing out of the ordinary. But for the comedy writing team, two of the Three original writers on Lucille Ball's top-rated I Love Lucy TV series, it was potential gold. Bob Carroll and uh, Madeline Davis, along with writer Jess Oppenheimer, were the uh, writers of the pilot for I Love Lucy. And uh, they were the show's only writers for the first four seasons. During that time, they were responsible for a string of memorably hilarious episodes, including Lucy and Ethel, Vivian Vance. Said Lucy Arnaz, Mom always credited her gifted writers with the unprecedented success of I Love Lucy. As a kid, I certainly was a fan of I Love Lucy and got, uh, got quite a few laughs from numerous episodes. And for that, I say thanks to Bob Carroll Jr. I'm Douglas Everett. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax, and we will see you next week at the same time. We really enjoy going out with, <laughs> with this great theme song to I Love Lucy.